So the idea was to recruit a, basically a, a third black miners, a third immigrant, and a third native white, and cramp them all together, and they'll fight amongst each other. And that way they'll be less likely to unionize. Welcome to the Harmony of Interest series, where we explore ideas that shape our world. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab, which focuses on content, on labor, political economy, art and culture, and we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Charles Keeney, who is the author of The Road to Blair Mountain, Saving a Mine Wars Battlefield from King Cole, which was published in January 2021. And he's also a founding member of the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum. Professor Keeney, Chuck, thanks so much for your time. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So I learned about your book because we're approaching the 100-year anniversary of the West Virginia Coal Wars, and the 1921 Battle of Blair Mountain. And it's gonna be commemorated with numerous activities in Charleston, West Virginia over this coming Labor Day. And there's also gonna be a three-day march organized by the United Mine Workers of America that will recreate the Miners' March that ended in the 1921 Battle of Blair Mountain. And I'm very excited myself. I'm gonna be driving out there and I'm gonna be participating in this commemoration in a few weeks. And I wanted to discuss your book and your history in West Virginia and how you first got interested in labor struggles. And I think one of the best places to start is to discuss your family history that is steeped in labor struggles. So who was your great-grandfather, Frank Keeney? Uh, well, Frank Keeney was this pivotal individual that became a rank and file leader and then union president during the West Virginia mine wars. Came from a pioneering family. My family moved into the region of what is now West Virginia in 1754, uh, just before the uh, outbreak of the French and Indian War, or the Seven Years' War, if you're in Europe. And then after that, the family moved to Cabin Creek to take part running flatboats of salt down the Canal River when the salt industry picked up after the War of 1812. There they stayed for about a century until the family lost their land to the coal industry along Cabin Creek. When sometime between when Frank Keeney was born and was two years old, he was born in 1882, the same year that the world's first coal-fired power plant debuted in New York City, which is kind of uh, ominous or fortuitous. I don't know exactly the, the, the word there, but. He was born the same year that these dramatic transformations were taking place and companies, railroad companies, steel companies, and of course coal companies were looking at Appalachia, particularly central Appalachia, as their golden goose, so to speak. And they began to, you know, buying up land, in some cases illegally or forcing families off their land in a variety of ways. My family lost a little over 2,000 acres of land to the coal industry. And... Frank Keeney then grew up, became a trap boy in the mines after completing the sixth grade in school. And then he became a rank and file leader during the Paint Creek, Kevin Creek strike. Became president of the union, UMWA in West Virginia after leading the miners to victory in Paint Creek and Kevin Creek. And then kind of spearheaded the movement to organize the rest of the state, which they did until they were blocked in Logan, Mingo, and McDowell counties. And that led to the second phase of the mine wars with events such as the Battle of Maitwan, the Three Days Battle of the Tug, and then culminating with the Battle of Blair Mountain. Now, during that time, Frank Keeney was also president of the State Federation of Labor. So he was really a, a key director of the entire labor movement in the state. He was a socialist. 
He was, however, forced out of the Union in 1924 after the treason trials following the Battle of Blair Mountain. The Union membership in West Virginia went from 50,000 UMWA miners when he left in 1924 to less than 1,000 in 1929 after he left. He started his own union during the Great Depression called the West Virginia Mine Workers, which had 23,000 members at a time when the UMWA had less than 1,000. And he orchestrated three hunger marches into Charleston during the Depression, started up a labor party. The, those things kind of dissolved after, uh, it, during Roosevelt's New Deal, Keeney disbanded his union and, and, and encouraged his miners to join the UMWA, which they did. And then he afterwards became something of a forgotten figure, as long with the history itself of the mine wars. So that's a nutshell. So I was listening to your interview with the Labor Radio Podcast Network members, Labor Valley Report from Alabama. Yeah. And you said you first heard about your great grandfather, I think, at a picnic. And the family wasn't really too keen to celebrate his work. And uh, could you just talk a little bit about that experience? Sure. The history itself is really interesting. You know, right now we're having a, an important conversation and controversy over race in the classroom in America right now. It's a conversation that we need to have, and there's a lot that needs to be done on, in that regard. But what's uh, one thing that's missing has been labor in the classroom, in addition to uh, an open, frank discussion about race in the classroom. So labor history has often been left out. And in West Virginia, it was a deliberate thing. In my book, I go into great detail. I'll cover the paper trail of how governors and the cooperators worked together to systematically exclude the mine wars and everything from the public discourse, even going as far as to destroy historic sites associated with the mine wars. And of course, their main goal was to blow up Blair Mountain. But anyway, the, because of this absence in the public discourse, a lot of the families that were associated with people that had participated in the mine wars didn't talk openly about it. Many of the leaders in the mine wars were socialists. And when I was growing up, the Cold War was still going on. And to be socialist, you know, was to be, you know, next to being a communist. And nobody wanted to be a communist, you know, when Rocky Balboa is fighting old Drago and all that kind of stuff's going on. So there was this kind of, I, I don't want to say shame, but, but a reluctance to talk. Now, on one hand, miners themselves and their families kept to a code of silence about the organization and the violence because they didn't want to end or hold their leaders liable, hold the union liable. So you had that. But because it was a suppressed history, because the miners didn't come out on the winning side, there was this reluctance for people to really talk about it. And that was one of the things that fascinated me most was I was growing up thinking that nothing interesting ever happened in West Virginia and nothing interesting ever happened. Of course, most people still think that nothing interesting happens in West Virginia, except when you get the you know, occasional New York Times reporter to parachute in and talk about Trump country or when a few miners get killed in an explosion, people get interested for 15 minutes. But there was this war that was fought here, a labor war. There were no monuments to this war. There were no books that I knew of. There wasn't taught in the classroom. We took West Virginia studies in the eighth grade, and my West Virginia studies teacher had never heard of the mine wars. So it was absent, a war with no monuments, and a war that was really something that was at the core of how we define and how we perceive America to be. 
you know, the supposedly this idea of, of opportunity, upward mobility, as if you work hard, you can achieve the, the American dream. And you're seeing a lot of things that were contradictory to that myth within the mine wars itself. So for a lot of these reasons, it drew me into it. But yes, my family and other families were reluctant to talk about it. When I started researching it, getting older, people had to know who I was, that I was Frank Kinney's great grandson before they would even talk to him. So I had to use that as an end to get in to talk to people and get people to open up about it. Yeah. So looking at these specific conflicts, some people say that the, the Battle of Blair Mountain was the Gettysburg for the labor movement that has been completely forgotten. But before we go there, the Paint Creek, Cabin Creek strike really got on my map because of Mother Jones' involvement. And there was demands for better pay, better working conditions, and the right to trade where people please. And oftentimes these miners were in company towns. So could you talk a little bit about what the concept of the company town was and why it was such an oppressive thing that ultimately led to the, these greater struggles? Yeah, in a lot of labor struggles across American history, one of the things that's unique a little bit about the what was happening in West Virginia is the, the enormous control that companies had because they built the towns themselves. Now you had company towns in other states, of course, but you had a higher percentage of the workforce working in a company town than in any other state. Percentages vary, but I've seen everything from uh, around 90% to up to 98% of the coal miners were all living in these company towns. The second highest state uh, during that period was Illinois with like 48%, something like that. So most of the miners are there working in a place where that's the only industry also. So they can't vote with their feet. They can't, you know, move to another job. They get trapped in this system. And, uh, and the way the system was set up, it was set up to keep the miners in debt. So they would be fronted, say, the first month's rent of their company house. Then they would be taken to the company store and allowed to buy groceries and equipment and all these things on credit. And then that was deducted from their paycheck at the company store. And a lot of times they wouldn't even get any company money, which isn't much anyway, but a lot of times they wouldn't even get that because they were so in debt to the company store. You know, the famous labor song, I owe my soul to the company store. Well, you really did, but they had company churches, company schools. They opened the miners mail and looked at it for radical propaganda. We talked about the surveillance state today, but the miners had everything surveyed to them by the mine guards, these private detectives that basically enforced this industrial autocracy within the coal fields. And so you have armed police that are looking over your shoulder, you're having your mail open during elections. By the way, they would often, in some towns, they would just fill out the ballots for the miners themselves. So they didn't even get to vote. So there was this political corruption, uh, a brutal assistant, the mine guards, you know, were, were very heavy handed, you know, would crack skulls, beat up union organizers, monitor everybody that came in and out of town. You live under that system, you know, you're going to want to fight back. So it's far more than simple union recognition. Of course, they're fighting for that. And it's far more than what, you know, Samuel Gompers would have said, bread and butter issues. This went down to they didn't have any individual liberties at all because it was almost, I hate using the word fascism, but it's almost like a corporate fascism because the word fascism is way overused in our society, particularly online. But <laughs> it has that kind of feel to it. They didn't have any freedoms. And so they were fighting back for that. 
So you mentioned Matewan, and there's a great movie by John Sayles, and you, you even mentioned that earlier before we started recording that you met with him and kind of took him through the town of Matewan, and you're going to be giving a tour of Matewan on that Sunday before Labor Day, and it's about an hour and a half drive from Charleston, I believe. So could you talk about Matewan, what happened, and then how that led to the, the larger Battle of Blair Mountain? Okay, so... Mate One kind of became the beachhead for union organizing in the southernmost counties. So they had a really successful organizing drive during World War One. Labor made a lot of gains across America in World War One, and then you had this post-war labor upheaval, not just in the United States but all across the Western world. Really, you know, going from not just the, of course what happened in Russia, but also you know, uprisings in Germany, like Spartacus uprising, the Red Years, and even had the Irish Revolution. Lots of, lots of uh, big things happening after World War One. these kind of tremors, aftershocks from that earthquake. And you had steel workers on strikes, and 300,000 steel workers went on strike, police strikes, all kinds of strikes after World War One. Well, you had this effort to try to unionize these three counties that had managed to keep out the union during World War One. And Mingo County, one of those three counties, the little town of Matewan became a beachhead for the Union Drive. Now, those three counties were the three largest coal producing counties in the state, and they could produce enough coal that if they remained non-union, that they could beat a nationwide union strike and continue to run coal. Okay, so if there was a national UMWA strike, those three non-union counties could produce enough coal so that they could break the strike. So this was pivotal to the UMWA's survival as a whole, nationwide, okay? But also you had these enormous circumstances of oppression dealing in, in, in these counties. But in this one little town called Matewan, there was a chief of police and a mayor who were union sympathizers. And this was very, very rare in the coal fields to have an elected officials that weren't bought out by the coal industry. Still very rare, by the way, but it was, it was extremely rare back then. And Sid Hatfield, the chief of police, stood up for the miners when their families were being evicted. That resulted in the gunfight that we call the Battle of Mate One that killed 10 people, including two of the leaders of the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency, the main business that supplied mine guards to the coal companies. That led to all-out guerrilla warfare, which broke out all along the Tug River, and it became known as Bloody Mingo after that. But Matewan became the beachhead for this unionization movement. Thousands of miners joined the union in those counties, but they were evicted from their homes. Huge strikes broke out, which lasted all the way until 1922. In May of 1921, you have the three days battle of the Tug. Three days of guerrilla fighting, which killed at least 30 people that we know of. Uh, martial law was declared, then uh, state police were brought in. The West Virginia state government created the state police specifically to break this strike. Okay, that's why we have state police in West Virginia. They were created as strike breakers, okay? They, and they were brought into the strike zone. They attacked the tent colonies, slashed the tents, stole the food, rounded up the miners, put them in pens. And then on August the 1st, 1921, Sid Hatfield and Ed Chambers Two key individuals that were in the Battle of Matewan were murdered as they were walking up the courthouse steps of the McDowell County Courthouse to go for trial. After the murder, after the tent colonies were cut off, the families were starving, the miners were being held in prison. That's when the miners in the Union counties 
organize and form this army. It was a week after Sid Hatfield's uh, death, murder in which Frank Keeney had held a rally at the state capitol and told the miners that the only way you can get your rights is with a high-powered rifle and told them to go home and await the call to march. Two weeks later, miners began assembling at Marmette and then somewhere between 10 and 15,000 of them began the march south towards Mingo. But before they could get to Mingo, they had to get through Logan County geographically and the co-operators set up defensive positions along Blair Mountain and along 12 miles of ridge lines, which led to the five-day fighting that we call the Battle of Blair Mountain. And there was also bombs dropped, I believe, as one of the first times in, in U.S. history within the United States. Right, but it wasn't the military that dropped the bombs. It was Don Chapin's private planes that dropped the bombs. Now, the U.S. military did come in, the U.S. Air Service under General Billy Mitchell, he was a big proponent for a separate branch of the uh, of the military to be devoted to the air to, to planes. So he was kind of one of the fathers of the air force. He flew into Charleston with a little squad, and they were going to if the miners didn't disperse, drop tear gas, and potentially bombs because he wanted to show the effectiveness of the air force of planes in putting down domestic uprisings. But ultimately, the military itself didn't drop any bombs because they ran into a storm and a couple of the planes crashed and it was kind of a debacle for them. But yes, the coal company forces did drop bombs. It's crazy. And I, I can just imagine these people coming back from World War I, doing the service of the United States government and they're being treated essentially like property of these, these mines and they're well-trained and they're not willing to put up with it anymore. And they're very skilled in being able to resist kinetically is something I, I find interesting of how World War I may have influenced it a little bit. Sure, when you look at Woodrow Wilson's rhetoric, make the world safe for democracy, and this huge propaganda campaign that they had throughout the Committee on Public Information, George Grill, and all the, the, the things that they did to galvanize public support for justifying this war overseas to make, we're gonna, we're going to change the map of the world and we're going to make democracy flourish. So you go overseas and then you come back and you don't have democracy at home. So yeah, th that's definitely in the minds of the miners as they attempted these organizing drives and efforts and strikes in the post-World War I era. And, and one more question before we turn to your book. What was the multiracial, multi-ethnic makeup of some of these mining camps during this time? Yeah, there's a, a co-operator by the name of Justice Collins, Justice Collins, and luckily his manuscripts and papers have survived in their West Virginia University at their uh, collections there, and he gives wonderful insight into the um, mind of a coal operator in the early 20th century, and he had a term that he used called judicious mixture. These towns were really cramped together, okay, and in some coal camps you would have as many as 24 languages spoken in some of these little coal camps. Now, you have places like New York City, uh, D.C., you know, they're incredibly diverse, right? You don't think of Appalachia as being a very diverse place, right? But even 100 years ago, in these big cities, the different ethnic groups had basically their own areas of town where they all separated, like a little Italy, for example, a Jewish quarter, you know, places where these different ethnic groups kind of had their own little neighborhoods. Not so in these coal camps because all the houses are cramped right beside one another. So the idea was to recruit a, basically a, a third black miners, a third immigrant, and a third native white and cramp them all together and they'll fight amongst each other. 
and that way they'll be less likely to unionize. And it didn't work. And the reason it didn't work, the miners themselves were able to actually overcome those barriers. And the UMWA was, you know, the first really major industrial union to really go after organizing blacks. Coal mining was one of the only jobs in America where a black man could make the same money as a white man uh, because they were paid by the ton and not by the hour. And so they had to work together underground too in close quarters and depend on one another because it's a very dangerous profession. So you have to be able to work with one another and that helped foster an attitude and let's in which people were able to put aside their differences. That's not to say that there was some kind of big racial harmony and they were having to be group hubs all over the place, but it, it, it is that they were able to at least oh, overcome their prejudices enough to know that they were in the same boat from a class consciousness standpoint. Yeah. So moving ahead now, you've been through some struggles yourself and could you talk about your book, The Road to Blair Mountain? Saving a Mine Wars Battlefield from King Cole and why you wanted to write it. So in 2010, I was working on my doctorate. I was in the dissertation phase, which is kind of grad school purgatory for those people that have gone through grad school, that dissertation desert that you're in when you're writing that no longer taking classes. And I had a job opportunity uh, in Logan County. And even though I wasn't finished with my dissertation looking at the job market after the 2008 crash, I decided to jump on it and came down to the coal fields to teach at a little community college. And I had not, I had not been there to the coal fields since I graduated high school. It was all through the coal fields in high school because I played sports and we would go to these coal schools. My high school wasn't in a coal community. It was in Lincoln County. Everybody uh, where I grew up worked at Union Carbide, worked in chemical manufacturing in Chemical Valley. So I, I, my great-grandfather got his family out of the coal camps. He didn't want his descendants working in, in coal mines. Anyway, as I come back and begin teaching in Logan, there's this whole controversy about the, the Blair Mountain battlefield. It was briefly put on the National Register of Historic Places after almost 20 years of effort by a local by the name of Kenny King. And the coal companies had used their influence to get it delisted for the National Register so that they could blast it with mountaintop removal. And I found a group online called Friends of Blair Mountain. I was not an activist of any sort. I was content to try to be an apolitical, eccentric professor, but that didn't work out. And I ended up getting involved in this group and helped organize a reenactment march, a 50-mile reenactment march that lasted a week to draw attention to saving the battlefield. And then became president of the group Friends of Blair Mountain where we did this eight year effort in order to try to save the battlefield and get it relisted on the National Register, which we were effective. We did get it put back on the National Register. We won a number of lawsuits. We, we had uh, a lot of difficulties in that, in going up against the coal industry in the heart of coal country. As if you've read the book, you know, computers been hacked a whole bunch of times. We've had our mail opened ourselves. We've been followed around. Our members have been threatened uh, with being shot by security, by coal company folks. We've been threatened to be sued by coal companies, all kinds of other things that I don't want to get into. But anyway, ultimately we were successful and we were able to get it put back on the national register and get it protected from mountaintop removal. Now it's not completely protected from timbering and from natural gas drilling. And coal companies still own most of the land of the battlefield. The battlefield's enormous. 
it's uh, it stretches for 12 miles okay and it's called the Battle of Blair Mountain, but the battle is much larger than the actual Blair Mountain itself. To give you some scale, the Battle of Verdun in World War I started on an eight-mile front. So this was a 12-mile front battle. Big battle, lots of uh, ground to cover. There's a lot of landowners, but most of the landowners, it's these huge landowning absentee corporations, and they still own it. And in, as long as they do, there's not going to be a historic park there. That's why I have to give a tour of Mate One and I can't give a tour of Blair Mountain during the centennial because they would frown upon the coal companies, me taking big groups up there. So we were successful. It was a long fight. And of course, we also kind of reinserted the history back into the regional and hopefully national consciousness with the creation of the Mine Wars Museum in Mate One. I call it identity reclamation because our history has kind of been ripped from us. And we're trying to reclaim our past and use that as a way to forge a new identity and a new 21st century for the region. So West Virginia Senator is in the news a lot, and he was governor at the time. And I saw some quotes back in 2009 that he said he had no idea about Blair Mountain going to be taken off the National Register. And then when you achieved a victory, they said, oh, it was just erroneous. And most of the land property owners around there were not against keeping it as a, a historic landmark. So can you talk a little bit about the, the politics and then even bringing in that, that tension between the environmentalists and the union organizers as well? Okay, so there's a lot to talk about there. Yeah. Let's, let's deal with the politics. There's a, a, a famous local quote by a guy by the name of Raymond, Raymond Chapin. He said in West Virginia, everything's political except politics. And it really sums up the atmosphere down here, which is a crazy political atmosphere in this state. Joe Manchin was governor of the state at the time of all of the delisting. The people who headed up the State Historic Preservation Office and the, and the uh, Division of Arts and Culture that made the decisions on this battlefield were appointees by the governor. And as I show in the book through the paper trail and everything, all the thing that we uncovered, it's impossible that Manson didn't know about it. But nonetheless, these counties, going back to Blair Mountain itself, the, the original battle all the way through the present, these counties are kind of ruled by these local little political families, have their own little fiefdoms, who have a really strong stake in the coal industry. So there is significant resistance on a local political level and on a state political level to do anything uh, to try and commemorate this history. And in addition, the coal industry is actively working to try to destroy it. And it's almost impossible to get elected in West Virginia by going against the coal industry. They just have too much political influence all the way down to boards of education and, and county commissioners. They leave no stone unturned. Therefore, they just let the industry do whatever they want. So if the, if the Coal Association calls up a governor and says, we want something delisted, then the governor complies. Now, Manchin has come a long way since then. He's now come out in favor of preserving the battlefield. And he came to our museum and visited it and put it up on his website. So he's come a long way. But when he was governor, he was still very much beholden to those special interests. One could argue that, you know, based on his actions over the past year as a senator, that he still is strongly influenced by those interests. 
And of course, he's a Democrat, right? And so you don't think of Democrats as being bought out or being pro-fossil fuel, but that's not the case in West Virginia. And on the activist side, I came in this with kind of fresh eyes. I was not an activist. The, the majority of the people that were originally supporting this protest march that we did 10 years ago in 2011 were environmentalists and environmentalist groups. There had been a strong anti-mountaintop removal environmentalist movement within the region. But their tactics had been, you know, to do things like tree sets where they set up in trees on mountaintop removal sites to halt production or chaining them to going to West Virginia DEP and chaining themselves to the door and using all these civil disobedience tactics. And to be called an environmentalist in the coal fields was kind of akin to being a witch in colonial Salem or, you know, on McCarthy's list, you know, <laughs> in the 1950s, you know, as soon as you got that label, people, locals wouldn't listen to you. In addition to that, the UMWA and environmental groups, the labor union, they didn't get along. A lot of environmentalists did not like the union because they felt that union coal miners had been threatening to them and harassed them during protests and all of this kind of stuff. So you have two groups, labor unions and environmental groups. They're supposed to be firmly embedded into the left, but they were at odds with one another in this region. And so we had to try to bridge that gap with the group that I lead, Friends of Blair Mountain, and try to get group, major groups like the Sierra Club, the major environmental organization in America, and the UMWA, traditionally one of those powerful unions in America, on the same page. And that took a lot of negotiating, backdoor talking, and we had to kind of be the go-between. And we also had to forge a different path than environmental groups in order to get locals behind us and brand ourselves just in terms of historic preservation, which we were able to do over time. But that took a while. And not all the environmentalists were happy with our approach and with what we wanted to do. But nonetheless, we were successful. West Virginia, I always find a very fascinating history breaking off from Virginia during the Civil War to remain a Union state. And from 1932 to 1996, 14 out of 17 presidential elections went Democratic. And then since 2000, Democrats are 0 for 6 in the presidential election. I also saw that West Virginia legislature passed an anti-union so-called right-to-work law, and they overcame a veto from the Governor Earl Ray Tomlin in 2016. And then the Supreme Court just recently upheld this anti-union right-to-work law. So there's this radical history. And I'm just wondering what happened? Did the Democratic Party leave West Virginia or did the West Virginia people leave the Democratic Party? It's a really good question. It begins with the collapse of the UMWA in the 1980s, going into the early 90s. Don Blankenship, who really became the most powerful co-operator in West Virginia, began a really strong anti-union drive in the mid-80s and successfully diminished the union significantly in the state. And in addition to that, the coal industry itself changed because it became more automated and mechanization and surface mining Surface mining hires half as many miners as underground mining. And as surface mining became more prevalent in the 90s, you have fewer and fewer miners. That means fewer and fewer union members. That means a weakened union. In the absence of a union, which kind of was this counterbalance to company propaganda, 
Companies really increased their hold over school curriculum, local discourse. They created the Friends of Coal in 2002 as this huge propaganda campaign. Massey Energy under Don Blankenship, they like built football fields for local high schools and Little League baseball fields, kind of a form of Appalachian bread and circuses to win over the public, bombarded the region with commercials. You can't listen to the radio in West Virginia for 15 minutes without hearing some kind of coal commercial. You know, they sing a song, Coal is West Virginia, that the Friends of Coal produce. They sponsor sporting events. But anyway, they kind of bombarded the area with this type of propaganda that they had, that the area hadn't seen in a century since the time of the mine guards. I call it the mind guard system as opposed to mine guard system in, in which they, they control the schools. They have this coal in the classroom, coal festivals. They're just from, from an early age. And it's also in the 90s that they, you begin to have the nationalization of politics, but also as the Democratic Party, it begins to embrace environmentalism a little bit more. They're able to use that as a wedge to say that the Democratic Party is now against fossil fuels, and coal mining jobs. And this combined with the decline of union, the effectiveness of coal company propaganda really begins to, to change things. Now, does the Democratic Party leave West Virginia? Well, you can certainly say that Bill Clinton's neoliberal policies don't help out organized labor in the United States. I remember the AFL-CIO really vehemently going against NAFTA which Clinton helped put through in the early 90s. And so that didn't help. I think that Democratic leaders have gone more to the neoliberal side and have not been as supportive of labor unions in the United States over the last 20, 30 years and have allowed, as our manufacturing base declines, have allowed new businesses like Amazon and Walmart to come in and not be unionized. And that's really hurt the Democratic Party, I, I think. And I think that they're uh, missing out on these enormous uh, opportunities in rural America because there's a lot of rural Americans that are pro-union. The teacher strikes proved that, that they may, there were a whole lot of Trump voters that went on, not just in West Virginia, but Oklahoma, Arizona, all these places that are pro-union. And if you appeal to the, to the union side of things, then you could get back a lot more rural voters. But now Biden has given unions lip service, but uh, we still don't know if you know, this huge infrastructure goes through, are we really gonna have union jobs? It's complicated and multi-layered. Uh, I did the best job of summarizing it right there. I go into more detail in my book. I'm very conscious of your time and we've gone over, but I just have a couple more questions for you. As a historian, I'm always wondering the, the concept of historical reclamation, as you, you mentioned, and how we can better teach current future generations about past labor struggles. And so could you talk about your role in establishing the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum and how we can just work together not just you and I, but the, the broader movement in ensuring that we get curriculum into the schools and into the future generations that, that can help carry the struggle forward. It's pivotal. It's pivotal that we get it in the classroom. It's pivotal that young people understand the significance of unions, understand why they have weekends, why they have a 40-hour work week, which is kind of non-existent at this point, but it's, it's at least there in terms of full-time employment. 
uh, and you know all of these benefits that workers have right now came because of unionism. So I'm really proud of the Mine Wars Museum. I'm proud to be a part of this wonderful team that has a passion for doing this grassroots people's history. It's not state controlled. We control it ourselves and we put it in Matewan. It's really fitting that Matewan that served as the beachhead for the union movement in the second part of the Mine Wars is now the beachhead for telling this history in the region. When we opened up in 2015, the town was dead. It's a small town anyway, very, very small little town. But all the, all the buildings were boarded up. There weren't any businesses. It was just completely dead. Four new little businesses have opened up in this town since we've started. The town's rejuvenated. There's tons of people that are there throughout the summer that come there for you know, the, the ATV trails that they have and outdoor things. But they're coming to the museum. We have visitors from all over the world and all over the country that have come to the museum. And it has been this way uh, of telling our story. And we created a school curriculum. We bring in teachers and their, and their classes and give out red bandanas uh, to them. We, we've got lots of good photos of like entire classes coming and all of them putting on their red bandanas. It's something that the kids like and that they don't forget. And it, it's what we have to do. I don't know in terms of looking at legislation to do that, but I think at the grassroots level, people have to begin embracing their labor history and begin to tell the story themselves. The people have to tell the story and they can't leave it up to these institutions to tell the story for them. So in closing, where do you see opportunity and hope? Well, it's a good question. I mean, I... I'm hopeful in the fact that, first of all, when we started to try to save the Blair Mountain Battlefield, people told me we had no shot. I was told, you know, you can't go against the coal industry in the heart of coal country and beat them on their own turf. And we did. So we proved that you can go to where the fossil fuel industry is strongest and win. So we, we proved that that's possible. We've also uh, shown that you can tell people's history in a way that is successful and in a way that get that gathers people's attention and that heritage tourism has a glimmer of hope of contributing to a new economy in central appalachia because we have to have a new economy a post-coal economy that is going to work for people so there are glimmers of hope in, in that regard i still think there's still significant barriers to rejuvenating the labor movement in the united states unionizing important things. So that's a tough road. And also climate change, I think, is going to further and further eclipse all other issues in the years to come. And we have to be cognizant of that. But, you know, we did things that, that, that people didn't think could be done. And it's that history itself that I think helped propel us forward. So, you know, you just keep fighting, you keep marching and hope for the best. Well, everyone should get a copy of The Road to Blair Mountain, Saving a Mine Wars Battlefield from King Cole, and uh, get some inspiration about all the work and struggle that you've been doing with a lot of your compatriots. So Dr. Chuck Keeney, thanks so much for your time. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Appreciate your interest and uh, have me on the show.